how to pick good healthcare stocks. This is Industry Focus. Hi, Fools. Healthcare analyst Michael Douglas, and I'm here with uh, one of our healthcare contributors, Todd Campbell, all the way in from New Hampshire. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing well. The wind uh, was whipping 50 miles an hour last night, but it, it didn't blow me away, so I'm, I'm here. <laughs> we're, we're, we're very grateful you're here. <laughs> we're very glad you're here. Um, so we wanted, to, we wanted to just kind of chat a little bit about what makes a great healthcare stock, because I think that you know this is, um, this is uh, in a lot of ways, kind of an impenetrable uh, I think, market for a lot of people. And one of the benefits of that, of course, is that there are potential opportunities for mispricings, you know, where folks who don't really understand what's going on are overreacting or underreacting to news. Uh, and that does give you know, risk-tolerant and savvy investors sort of opportunities to invest in great companies, sometimes at valuations that might seem stretched by, uh, let's say, the S&P's um, uh, standards, but less so when you're thinking NASDAQ, tech, healthcare. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, Todd. What, what do you think is the first thing that people should be looking for in a healthcare stock? Let's say a biotech stock. Sure. You know, there are basic thing, ways that I approach any stock, and it, it doesn't really necessarily have to be biotech or a big pharma. It could even be a retail stock. Mm -hmm. But in the healthcare space, what I like to see is first top line product what are the products that the company already has on the market and the reason i want to know that is i want to have confidence that the management team has been there and done that mm -hmm. i want to know that they can launch a product have it make money commercialize it and i want to know that that money then is coming in and being able to be used to help fund the next product cycle the next things that are going to come down the line yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good, really good point. And, and when we're thinking about um, about the the sort of risks that healthcare companies, well, really all companies uh, face, but I think it's particularly true in healthcare. Um, it's that you, know, you want to make sure that you have a management team that knows how to commercialize a product. And in healthcare, because so many companies are so reliant often on one or maybe two products, it's just really important to have a management team that's done that before, knows how to do it, how to get that product in front of the maximum number of doctors and ultimately patients. Absolutely. And Celgene Corp, I think, is a great example of a company that has a proven management that is delivering, that has products on the market. They're growing, they're demonstrated, they're able to basically control the market. And, you know, I mean, just to riff on them for a couple seconds, let's let's talk about them as, sure. as a great example of what to look for in a top-line company with a proven management team. Um, you know, they've built a great franchise around one indication, multiple myeloma, and that's an important indication. They have a drug called Revlimid, and Revlimid is on pace to do $5 billion in sales. Uh, this year, yeah. um, and that's up 20% from last year. So you've got a big drug with the majority of mark of the market um, that's growing, and that shows to me, okay, they know how to launch a company, a drug, and they know how to make sure that doctors prescribe it, um, and that money's going to come in very handy. Right. Well, and one of the things that Celgene I think does really well, and 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 just to um, just to, for full disclosure, I am a, a Celgene shareholder and The Motley Fool recommends Celgene. Um, you know, it's a, uh, one, of its, one of the smart things that they do is they'll get a drug approved for an indication and then they'll have 
uh, trials for several other indications. So they'll kind of get it on the market, then they'll be reporting this trial data, and so um, that's how they're able to really build that long-term, really uh, fantastic sales rank. That's what they've done with Revlimid, um, and they've got other drugs that they're looking to do that with as well. Yeah. You know, Michael, just to jump in for a second, yeah. I'm also a shareholder in Celgene. Um, on the Revlimid side, you know, that's one of the reasons that I like this stock so much for 2015. Yeah. You know, Celgene has a dozen programs that are either label expansions or potential new drugs um, mm -hmm. ongoing right now. And one of those expansion programs is for Revlimid. Um, in February, the FDA will make a decision on whether or not to approve its use as a first-line treatment in multiple myeloma. And currently, I mean, it's the dominant treatment for second line. So, I mean, if they get that vote of approval in February, then sales could go a lot higher than the five billion run rate they're at now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely a lot of opportunity with uh, with it, with expansion. So, so actually, that, that, I think that brings us in very nicely to to the second really key thing you have to look for in a in a biotech or a pharma stock, which is thinking about sort of a, a broad and expansive pipeline. And 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 actually, I usually use Celgene as an example when I'm when I'm talking to uh, uh, to to new analysts here um, as sort of like uh, a, a stock that I think really uh, exemplifies this. Um, but what you're looking for, to my mind, is kind of a, a broad and deep pipeline, right? So you want a pipeline that isn't Totally relying on one drug necessarily, although of course there are, there are other examples. But you know we're we're talking beginning stuff here, um, and you, you want a, a pipeline that has stuff in phase you know assets in phase three, in phase two, in phase one, so that you know that they're going to keep that pipeline well stocked, and that also you've got um, incoming data, so that you've got drugs that can get on the market and expand that market share and into new indications. Yes, um, you know the second thing that I like to look for in any company and specifically in healthcare we would be talking about the pipeline yeah um, but if you could apply that to any healthcare stock you know you could apply that to an insurer or whatever what is the next product cycle going to be and, yeah. and like you said I mean the way that drugs are developed is first you do all the preclinical work on them then you got to bring them into the clinical trial phases and you know you go through phase one which is usually hey you know, is this drug safe? Phase two, okay, what should the dose be? And does it, does it show signs that it's going to work? And then phase three, okay, let's roll it out to a lot of different people and see how it goes. Um, it's important for investors to understand that because 90% of the drugs that go into phase one never see the light of day when it comes to commercialization. Yeah. You know, it, it, only 10% or so actually make it all the way through FDA. So you want to find pipelines that have, yeah, they, they're, they're diverse enough where you're got a, you, you're not reliant solely on the success or failure of one drug in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, it can be label expansions like we see a lot with Celgene. I mean, Celgene's got a Braxene, which is a cancer drug. They just got that label expanded in 2013 to include pancreatic cancer. They've got a Tesla, which just came out of their uh, R&D and through clinics and just got approved for psoriasis in September. That drug theoretically could be a billion dollar drug at some point uh, and that's their first autoimmune drug so again you want to have a pipeline that's going to provide you with the depth either through label expansion or controlling one particular indication or that spreads you out a little bit into some other indications using those product sales that we talked about in point one right uh, to fund fund that development rather than say dilutive shareholder offerings or stock offerings, uh, taking on debt or, you know, giving away the house, if you will, in a partnership deal. Right. Well, and, and, and speaking of that, and, and 
you know, in some in some uh, industries, you're going to tend to see balance sheets that are not quite fortress balance sheets, right? When when you look at real estate investment trusts, for example, they tend to be highly levered, and you do see a lot of that in biotech as well, where you know you've got a lot of debt. Um, often there's uh, a fair amount of shareholder dilution going on, um, but but I would I would argue, and, and I think you would too, Todd, that it's really important to see uh, a company that has a balance sheet such that it can weather these storms. Now, now again, that's not to say that healthcare stocks should never dilute. There are legitimate times to. It's not not to say that they should never take on uh, debt. There are legitimate times to do that, but you do want to know that this that this company has. Uh, a fair bit of dry powder to throw into, let's say, additional phase three trials if a drug suddenly starts doing really, really well. Michael, you nailed it. I mean, I, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that healthcare investors make, especially in, in when it comes to biopharma, yeah. is looking at is not looking at the balance sheet, not fully understanding just what kind of financial shape the company is in. Uh, it, it costs. Well, a tough study just showed that it costs, like I think it's indirect costs, one point. Seven or one point nine billion dollars to develop a drug. If you include indirect costs, it's coming up on three billion. That's crazy money. Um, so you know they having a good balance sheet that can afford the inevitable stumble of a drug in trials is, I think, something that more investors should spend time thinking about. Um, you, you know, look at cell. Go back to Celgene for a second. Sure. You know, here's a company that has. I'm going to say it's, I'm going to call it a rock solid balance sheet. You know, it's got 3.7 billion dollars in cash. Mm-hmm. That's up from you know 3.2 billion coming out in December. So even with all the activity that it's going on, it's still socking away more and more money for shareholder benefit later on down the road. So all those expenses that it has, it's still seeing its cash hoard grow. You know, one of the ways that I like to look at the balance sheet in, in just really quickly is to look at the current ratio. And the reason I look at the current ratio is it gives me a very quick and dirty look at whether or not a company can make good on its short-term financial obligations. Mm-hmm. It basically takes a look at and says, okay, short-term liquid assets, short-term financial obligations, you know, what's the cover ratio, if, if you will? And, you know, on, on Celgene, you're talking about a current ratio that's above six. I mean, you really don't have to worry about whether or not if debtors come knocking, Celgene can come up with the money to take care of that. So I think that, you know, you want to know what products they have. You want to know what the pipeline looks like. And you want to make sure, like you said, that there's plenty of dry powder to take care of shareholders. Yeah. And and, and again, like, I think that for, for someone with a PhD in healthcare, perhaps in something healthcare related, perhaps it's a little bit different. But for everyday investors, folks like you and me, um, it, it's really important to sort of have those uh, have those understandings because you can a drug can look really good um, and it can completely flop and so so having sort of these additional fallbacks gives you a lot of uh, a, a lot of kind of risk mitigation in what is perceived to be a pretty risky sector uh, and, and and I think that's that's something that's really important for people to know about as they're kind of getting into and, and thinking about their allocation in healthcare. Absolutely. All right, sounds good. Um, so so. We've talked about a stock we like. Let, let, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit of the anatomy of a healthcare stock we wouldn't like as much. Uh, and uh, Todd, what, what, what's one that comes to mind for you? Well, I'd say one of the ones that makes me very nervous is GW Pharmaceuticals. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, Todd, it's, it's a marijuana stock. I mean, come on, you know, it can't go down, right? Right, so. right. They just go to the moon and then they just keep on going to Mars. No, you know, these these marijuana stocks they have potential. 
but they have far more potential than they have profit. Mm -hmm. Until they prove themselves, um, I think investors should be very cautious. You know, again, product, pipeline, balance sheet. Now, GW Pharma has a product. It's called Sativex. It's used to treat multiple uh, sclerosis spasticity. Um, it's only approved in Europe. But it only generates out a couple million dollars in sales per quarter. This is not a major drug for them. It's not generating a lot of uh, revenue to, to finance the pipeline. Now, you could argue, well, who cares because the pipeline looks really good. You've got marijuana drugs that could be used to treat schizophrenia, that could be used eventually to treat maybe even diabetes. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that the programs that are closest to commercialization, they treat very small patient populations or they're for second line use. They're not, they're not front line drugs. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're doing a study, for example, on cancer pain using Sativex. And, but they're partnered up with Atsuka and Atsuka has, you know, the commercial rights to that drug. So even if they get approval for, for Sativex and cancer pain, it's going to be as a second line treatment behind opiates. And Suka is going to get the, the money. GW Farmer is going to get about royalties are going to be about twenty percent. Okay. So you need to you need to look at those kind of things and say, well, does this really justify a one point two billion dollar market cap? I mean, I like I get nervous when stocks start trading at more than we'll call it five times sales in the biotech and, and pharma space. And you know you, that would mean that you would need to be doing about you know we'll call it two hundred to three hundred million dollars in revenue. I'm not sure that these drugs can will get them there, and I'm not. Sure, I'm certainly not confident that they will get there in the next year. And I, and I assume that's five times either forward sales or peak sales. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was about to say, wow, I've got a, I've got a, a few in my portfolio that are trading a little bit more richly than that. But, but when you get into like peak sales or forward sales, it's a little bit less because, of course, you know, these are often on steep growth ramps. Now, now to be fair, in GW's defense, you know, they're not yet approved. Uh, for Sativex or Epidiolex, uh, which is kind of their other drug that could be could actually potentially have a fair amount of sales behind it uh, in the United States, and and they are uh, in uh, in phase threes right now for Sativex, um, and and it, it if if FDA approval does come, that that should give them something of a better ramp, but I would agree with you that they still look pretty darn richly valued, uh, considering what we've seen thus far. Yeah, I just want more proof in the pudding. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 very fair. I mean, at at the end of the day, um, you know, we've got a commercialization. You know, uh, uh, excitement about a drug is one thing; potential of a drug is one thing. But commercialization uh, is is really going to be very key in terms of whether a stock actually pans out as a good investment. And you know, we've seen kind of. Uh, people have called it the marijuana bump or something like that, you know, for these cannabidiol bio biopharmaceuticals like GW, um, and uh, and that has kind of pushed their valuations such that I feel pretty that they're they also they, I think they look pretty stretched to most people, and uh, and I think a lot of us are kind of saying, well, you know, maybe let's give it a few more years, and and we'll understand just how much of disruptors these are going to be. Yeah, I mean, they could eventually be great drugs, sure. and great it could be a great company. Um, it's just, I think it's very speculative at this point. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially for someone just dipping their toes into healthcare, we tend to prefer stalwart, proven companies that, that have really just done a great job of doing a return on investment year after year. Uh, stocks like Celgene. Um, so, so turning from that, let, let's talk to let's talk the retail end of healthcare just real briefly. Uh, you know, Rite Aid is reporting earnings uh, next week. Uh, you know, it's 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 shocking to me. You know, we're already uh, almost in earnings season. Rite Aid being kind of the one of the first shots fired. Uh, what are we uh, What are we looking for? 
you know, Rite Aid is an, a very interesting stock. Yeah. I mean, shareholders have really been rewarded in owning this stock since 2012. This was a company that a lot of people thought might go uh, bankrupt. Yeah. Um, however, they've refinanced their debt, they've closed a lot of stores, and that's put them back on uh, into profitability. Um, that being said, you know, this stock was trading around $8 and change um, earlier this year, and now it's around $5.50. And that's happened because of a couple reasons. First, they have a drug distribution deal uh, where they, they handed off their drug purchasing and distribution to McKesson. They thought that that was going to save them a lot of money. That hasn't happened yet. Um, they've said, okay, it's going to happen next quarter, next quarter, next quarter. So one of the things you're going to want to watch as an investor is, are we seeing any benefit yet from the McKesson deal? If so, that would lend me to think that earnings could get a bump up next year rather than a bump down, which is something that we've seen the last couple quarters is them taking down their earnings estimate. Um, I also want to watch them to see what they say about potential growth in the future. You know, Rite Aid has been consolidating. They're closing stores, not opening stores. So yeah. CVS and Walgreen, they're expanding, 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 where Rite Aid has been contracting, contracting, contracting. So I want to see them, now that they're profitable again, start to put some money back into it and start to win some market share. You know, they're conspicuously absent from two huge retirement markets, um, Texas and Florida. Yeah. Uh, I want to see if they have any plans to start getting into those markets. Um, they've shown some signs of doing that when they bought Ready Clinic, an in-store healthcare clinic that operates in grocery stores in Texas. They did that acquisition earlier this year. I want to see more of that. I also want to see whether or not there's any update on how that Ready Clinic strategy is progressing. You know, are they going to continue to open up uh, new Ready Clinics within their pharmacies at the pace that they indicated earlier in the year? Yeah. Well, because frankly, let's face it, they're playing catch up. I mean, Walgreen has, the last estimate I saw was 400, probably more than that by now, in-store clinics, uh, and CVS has... What, 800, 900? I think they're pushing 900. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an impressive number. And, and these are really driving same-store sales because somebody comes in, you know, let's say that they, um, oh, I don't know, they need a vaccination and they also uh, have, a little, have the sniffles. You know, okay, so fine, they'll pick up uh, you know, some DayQuil or something like that while they're there. Maybe they'll pick up a candy bar and, uh, and a People magazine on their way out. And so that's a really big benefit. I mean, um, CVS has just been showing that their same-store comps have really been partially driven by that minute clinic strategy that they've been doing. Um, and then also, just uh, just more broadly, by the strength of their pharmacy. You know, the front end hasn't been as strong because of, uh, because of cigarettes. Um, to, to my mind, the only other thing I would add is um, I, I want to see how their, their wellness uh, format uh, is yeah. progressing because they've been doing that in a lot of their stores and they've been seeing a same store sales bump from that. So to my mind, you know, if you're if you're looking at uh, sort of growth, the the key first metric in in something that's sort of retail focused is looking at those same store sales. Yeah, and they're good same store sales. The, the one of the neat things about Rite Aid is it actually tells you how they've done before they actually report earnings. Right. They're one of the few companies that still reports monthly data. So we already know that the same store sales at, at, for Rite Aid during the last quarter were up 5.4%. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's pretty impressive. And you're right about wellness. I mean, this is a reformat of their stores that is designed to do exactly what you were saying before, which is to, to encourage more sales, to be able to provide more services. 
uh, for each person that's walking through the door. And with an aging population, with more people getting health care insurance, either through Medicaid or the exchanges, prescription volumes are climbing. Yeah. You know, it, it, what was the big driver of the of same-store sales growth was prescription sales. Yeah. I mean, I think they were up 7% same-store sales, so... Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Well, and I'll tell you, uh, actually, there's a um, there's a Rite Aid that's been just recently redesigned uh, in a shopping center near where I uh, where I live. And and the other day, I kind of spent a little time wandering through it. The only reason I didn't buy anything was because I didn't have my wallet with me. Uh, otherwise, I probably would have. So so but at least at least in this anecdote, it appears to be working, and certainly the data would seem to bear that out. So definitely something we'll want to watch very closely with uh, with Rite Aid. Um, any other final thoughts on them, Todd? No, but it will be a very interesting week to, to go through and dig through that earnings report and see what their conference call, what's said on the conference call. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Todd. Um, you know, I, before we uh, sign off, I just want fo- to let folks know, you know, we talk a lot about high growth stocks on industry focus here at The Motley Fool, particularly, as you can imagine, healthcare, where we're talking about these, these stocks with these just incredible growth ramps. Um, you know, Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner uh, actually has a checklist of six different things he looks for in the growth stocks he invests in. Um, and if you want access to David's checklist, just send us an email at growth at fool.com. And, and again, that's, that's growth at fool.com. And we'll show over that uh, that checklist, and, and you can take a look. It's totally free, so uh, so please feel free to. Uh, once again, that's growth at fool.com. If uh, you know, a- as always, check back to where the money is uh, and fool.com for all of your healthcare and other investing needs. Full on. <laughs>